I'm John Seifer. And I'm Jerry O'Shea. We spent over 30 years in the CIA uncovering global conspiracies. Conspiracies aren't just a theory to us, which is why we started our podcast, Mission Implausible. Everyone has questions about conspiracy theories, but with our background, we can actually answer those questions. Anyone can just start screaming about microchips and Jewish space lasers, but it's our mission to remove the bull and get down to what's real. Listen to Mission Implausible on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit bloomberglive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. John, hello. Morning, Merton. There's so much to talk about. I don't know where to start. And, and really importantly, so much to talk about in areas where you and I have just been right. <laughs> that's, that's always the best areas to talk about, I feel. I know. I know. Now, you've written, and we're not going to talk about this. I just want to put down a marker so everyone knows that we were right. You've written about the Japanese equity market today, and you and I have been talking for a while about how Japanese equity is far too cheap, everything's changing. When I say a while, I mean a really a very long while. And finally, they've broken through what um, our old friend Jonathan Allen used to call the iron coffin lid, uh, which means that the only way is up, right? Just say yes, because we're all going to talk about this. They can go and read Money Distilled and read all about it there. Your job is just to say yes. Yes. Excellent. The thing I really want to talk about today is the other thing that you and I have been writing about for a long time. We've been writing about how nobody understands how widely spread the tax burden is in the UK. So we read, you and I, how many years ago now, we read an article, I think in the New York Times, about... Um, 2014. 2014, because we also have good memories, which is important or rather. <laughs> you have a good memory and sometimes you remind me about stuff we've talked about in the past. Um, and we read this article, which we thought was absolutely amazing because it explained the fluidity of income earning in the US and how over a lifetime, people are sometimes in the bottom quintile of earning, sometimes in the top quintile of earning, often in the middle quintiles, etc. But 76% of people, according to the study, passed through the top quintile of income generation in the US at least once during a career. And you know what the top quintile income in the US is? Actually, not off the top of my head, no. Luckily, I do. Uh, back when the, <laughs> back when the article was written, it was it was slightly lower, but it's now about uh, $269,000, or well, that was the number last year. So that means 76% of income tax paying workers in the US at some point during a year earn around $270,000. Absolutely amazing and a great testament to the uh, meritocracy and fluidity of, of the US economy. Now, everybody thinks that that is not the case in the, U in the UK, right? So when we had all the stuff out from the IFS this week explaining that in a couple of years, 20% of income tax paying workers in the UK would end up in the 40% bracket, everyone went, oh my God, that's awful, 20% of people. And you and I thought back and we remembered that article that we'd read and we thought, hmm, 20% people is the bottom band there because in fact, there'll be fluidity in the UK economy as well. Incomes are not static, particularly in the private sector. They move around the place 
all the time. You can sometimes be in a lower bracket. You can sometimes be in a higher bracket. Let's go back to the quintiles. We move around the place inside these quintiles. And what we didn't know, though, is exactly what those numbers might look like in the UK. And now I'm handing over to you because one of our brilliant colleagues at Bloomberg pointed us to some ONS data, which gave us some clues, right? Yeah, so Conrad in the office um, very kindly dug out um, this this uh, particular report called Income Dynamics, um, I think is the, the name of the report. And it's, off, I mean, it's nowhere near as granular. I think that was an academic study that the US was referencing. Um, and so that had actually gone through an entire lifetime. But even looking at just 10 years, um, what this study found was that while people in the top quintile in 2010 were more likely to stay there for the whole time between 2010 and 2020, you still found that uh, just basically half of them weren't there by the time um, the, the decade ended. Um, you also found that more than half the people who started in the bottom quintile had then moved out of it by the time the, the kind of decade ended. And in the middle, there was virtually, there was just a lot of moving about. So people were in the second and then the third and then the fourth and vice versa. So the point isn't so much that, and we'll probably, I mean, there are specific kind of statistics and uh, money distilled from earlier this week. Um, but the point is that, yes, there is a lot of income fluidity here too. And there, there might not be as much as the US. In fact, I'd be astonished if there is as much as in the US, because obviously the US is the kind of creme de la creme of meritocracy and kind of capitalist dynamic and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's very clear that, as you said, the idea that 20% of income taxpayers will be paying 40% tax is a very low bar estimate. And I would wager that the majority of workers, as in more than half, will pay 40% income tax at some point during their careers. And I think that the important thing about that is that it should make us think about this differently. Um, I mean, the one actually that I pick up on, and I think uh, you know, we should discuss this another time, but we're always talking about how you know maybe tax relief on pensions is skewed and that it should be uh, done differently. But the thing is, if there are points in most people's careers where they are 40% taxpayers, those are also the times in their lives where they're going to be wanting to put away as much as possible for their pensions. So perhaps this idea kind of flattening the tax relief and pensions isn't such a good idea, and nor is it actually particularly fair, uh, particularly on anyone who has yet to benefit from that tax relief. But that's a slightly separate issue. Well, as yeah. can I just pick up that one quickly? Oh, yeah, that, no, go for it. I, obviously, I agree with you on everything, and I particularly agree with you on this, and it's one of the main reasons why I feel that the annual allowance is the problem, that the mm. lifetime allowance was never the problem. The problem is the annual allowance, because as soon as people get to a point which as it turns out, more people than you think do get to their few high-earning years. Those are the years when they're then told they're not allowed to contribute very much into a pension. And that's yeah, where that's the problem point. comes. You know, So it, it's it, the whole system is set up with the belief that politicians have, because most politicians cannot see beyond the end of their own noses, they believe that everybody's income is like theirs the same every year, because anyone who works in the public sector, uh, well, particularly in, in as an MP, because you don't get promoted or demoted outside going in and out of the cabinet, right? Their income, bar a little inflation adjustment, remains static year after year after year. And they make policies for that situation, 
not for the situation, which these these numbers that we're looking at show most people are, are not in. See, I, I, I'll give you a I think that's an interesting point. The, the one thing I would say is I just query slightly whether they have that excuse because, I mean... Are you saying I'm being too nice to MPs? Am I being too nice well, to I'm just, I mean, career politicians may have a sort of static kind of income, but I mean, you know, every four years they run the risk of getting thrown out in their backsides and then they don't have anything. And then also there's all the ones who... Um, you know, quite rightly, in my view, kind of make money on the side. So, in, in a funny kind of way, I think they should be more used to, um, you know, ups and downs in their, their annual income than. So, I'm, I'm not sure that they have the excuse that I could see if they were normal public sector workers, you know, because there's like pay grades and bans and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it generally is a kind of matter of, you know, as long as you stay in work, you go up the way. But with politicians, they have a much more volatile career path if they're at all I mean if they're at all ambitious so it just strikes me that actually I'm not sure they have that excuse okay it's, well uh, they're, they're, they're just making crap policy then anyway yeah, moving I, on. That, that, was a, that, was an, that was an aside where were you actually going with this conversation I have totally forgotten already but no I think it's it's this thing of well actually the other interesting thing about this politically is that I do think that people will start to notice because it's been popular to talk about taxing you know the rich and then throwing income at a certain level in as being the rich and the more people who get hit by higher rate tax um and not to mention kind of horrendous kind of marginal tax rates as child benefits withdrawn etc the less likely that charges to stick i mean one of the things that i thought was interesting quite clever about the way the ifs publicized this is they made the point that in the early 1990s, virtually no nurse at all was paying 40% tax. And by 2027, something like one in eight of them will be paying 20%, sorry, 40% tax. 40% tax. Mm. One in four teachers, almost like, I mean, like well over a third of police officers. Yeah, but and you know, again, so, that's at one static point. Yeah, exactly. Many, many more of them will move through this rate over their careers. And that's the key thing, the point that we're desperately trying to get across to everybody, is that it might be one in four policemen in, in two years if you if you take a static point, but it'll be many, many, many more over careers. So well, that, this explains why... Um, and this is really important. Listen up, politicians. This explains why electorates are generally against the top rate of taxes going up, because they know that there's a very strong chance that they're going to pay that rate of tax at some point. And it's going to be in the one or two years when they suddenly go, oh, wow, I'm really earning now. Oh, someone else took everything. Yeah. It's, yeah, they should learn that. And they're going to, I mean, the one thing that worries me is they'll learn the wrong lesson and they'll decide to just shunt a load of tax onto something else um, and make our lives miserable that way. But it, yes, I, I think That's it. the so focus I think needs to fall on how do we make more money overall? How do we grow the pie again rather than sitting kind of, uh, you know, fretting about. Uh, saving bits here and there and cutting this and cutting that um, and all of that kind of goes back to we should have a smaller state etc etc should be less growth. regulation 
you know. And uh, we had horrible productivity numbers again today. Focus on growth, mm. focus on productivity. Read Money Distilled, by the way, because there's also some bits and bobs in there. There's a growing uh, body of anecdotal evidence, at least, that people are voting with their feet and wealth creators are beginning to leave the UK for warmer climes in every possible way. So that's very important. I just want to leave you with these numbers again. We've told you them before, but in this podcast, but listen again. You think that in the UK, the rich are the rich and the poor are the poor. But in this quintile data, we've been looking at over the 10-year period, nearly 50% of those in the top quartile at the beginning were not there at the end. And over 60% of those who are in the bottom quartile at the beginning were not there at the end. The rich are not the rich and the poor are not the poor. There's a lot of fluidity in the UK. Right, John? Yep. It's not all lost. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, maybe the US is better, but I wonder. I'd really like to have proper data on this. Right. Hopefully it's somebody out there listening right now. This in one is, of the stats yeah. offices or a university somewhere, you might have this data. You might be looking at it. Let Send us know. it to us. Send it to us. Put your political prejudices aside, everyone at universities. <laughs> Send us the data. <laughs> Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, a conversation with Sharon Bell, Managing Director and Senior European Equity Strategist at Goldman Sachs. Yes, our first guest from Goldman Sachs. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. We hugely appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Kind to come. Now, listen, I want. I know. I know that you. You. You're basically one of those rare guests we have who knows absolutely everything. And you know, I could ask you about any market around the world, and you'd know the answer. So, what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, and I think the, re- the listeners will love this, is just start by saying, could you give us an overview? It's a huge question, right? An overview of global markets at the moment. What is going on? on out there? What are the main dynamics behind market moves and what should we be looking at? I wish I knew everything. But uh, in in some ways, I think global markets have surprised people this year. On the positive side, a lot of um, investors expected weaker returns um, this year. We've had pretty strong returns, actually, especially in Europe, double-digit returns for a lot of indices already, and we're not even halfway through the year. And uh, the US market as well, especially the NASDAQ, but um, the S&P 500 as well up to um, year to date. So reasonably good returns on equities. And particularly given all the things that equities face, um, interest rates have been rising, commodity prices have come down, uh, growth has definitely slowed, albeit not in recession yet. So in some ways, I would say the market's been quite resilient so far this year. And then on top of all of that, we've had uh, all the stress in the US banks with some bank failures, uh, et cetera, and, and concerns about slowing um, loan growth as well. But I guess uh, the things that have really boosted the market and helped the market, especially in Europe, which is my focus, is um, energy prices, gas prices weren't as high as people feared, worried about coming into this year. They came down. That's helped the consumer. It's helped governments as well um, because they promised to cushion the consumer um, from higher prices. Um, Also, the contagion, the feared contagion from the bank stress in the US hasn't been as bad yet as feared. Of course, that could come. But um, at the moment, we've only seen a small tightening in credit conditions and a small fall in loan growth. So I'd say that markets have digested things relatively well. But our main concern for the equity market at the moment, um, particularly in the US, is that it's not cheap. It trades on a a PE ratio of sort of 18 to 19 times. That's above its 20-year average. 
And of course, there is now another asset class out there, which is quite attractive, offering you four or five percent yield, and that's short-term rates um, given where interest rates are now. So I would say uh, resilient, but a little bit mixed. And uh, we do have concern that returns will be low from here. Yeah. So basically, when you say resilient, what you mean is it's too resilient. It's scarily resilient. Something doesn't feel quite right. I mean, last year we had this sense that that we were going to revert to some kind of valuation norm and possibly, you know, profit margins were going to revert to some, begin to revert some kind of historical norm as well. And that that was something that we'd see going through into this year. And some of that didn't happen this year. Instead, we've seen a reversion back to uh, the dynamic of, of the last few years, the pre-2022 years, as opposed to a continuation of the dynamic of 2022. Very unexpected. Yes, I'd say that's probably fair in a number of senses. Um, one in the sense that rate expectations have started to come down. So that 2022 was very characterised by high inflation, inflation constantly surprising on the upside. Economists had to let go of this idea that it was transient. It turned out that inflation was very sticky um, last year and interest rates had to go up and were constantly rising above people's expectations. So far this year, I think a a big boost to equities in many ways has been the expectation that interest rates will be peaking. We, in fact, do think that interest rates have peaked now in the US at the short end. Where we differ, I think, from the consensus is that um, we don't expect them to come down very rapidly. So we think rates will plateau for a period of time. But yes, you're right. It's been very resilient, maybe overly resilient, not reflecting some of the risks out there, which is that the remainder of this year, you're likely to see very slow growth. There's a risk of recession. It's not in our forecast, but there's certainly a risk of that. And there's also not much risk premium priced into equities, I guess you would say, um, because the yield you can get on other assets is quite attractive relative to equity. Okay, so let's just stick briefly with the interest rate inflation dynamic. So you're expecting that rates have pretty much plateaued, well, peaked, should we say, but are going to stay at this kind of level for a longer period than some others might think. Does that also suggest that you expect inflation to remain reasonably high in the short to medium term? We do expect inflation to come down. Inflation has already come down from its peaks in most places. It's remained quite sticky and high in the UK, Uh, But in most places in the US, inflation recently printed below 5% headline inflation. Core inflation has been coming down too. Uh, So that that is helpful for global economies because you won't need such hard interest rate rises if if inflation is already starting to normalise. The fact that energy prices and commodity prices have come down from their peaks as well is also helpful in bringing down inflation. Uh, But there are some elements of inflation that are likely to be sticky. The service sector still looks very strong, and that's services consumption is a big part of economies um, in pretty much all Western economies. Um, Also, wage growth, although it's come down off its peaks in the US, is still very high. And in Europe, there's often uh, two-year wage deals. So it took a while for wages to, to pick up in Europe, remember sort of a year ago or so, people were constantly asking why aren't German wages picking up more? But I think that's largely because of the two-year deals. You're starting to see those come through now. Also, labour markets are very tight still. We keep hearing about this and pretty much every country labour markets are tight. And again, that's going to mean higher wages. Higher wages feeds into core inflation. So for those reasons, um, we think inflation will come down, but uh, it's not going to come down rapidly in the way that it would have done before because of this tight labour market. It's interesting. I mean, wages 
fast rising wages seem to be the the major worry. I mean, in some sense, of course, it's not a worry. It's wonderful if people can keep their real incomes constant, right? Or even if uh, real wages can go up a uh, little, possibly even significantly. That's a good thing uh, in general. But of course, it's very bad for inflation. And one of the things that people keep telling me is that, again, this rise in wages is transient, that it's a one-off, that we'll get uh, high, high rises this year, but then that'll be that. But I keep looking at them thinking, well, hang on a tick, you know, after many, many years of people not demanding high wage rises because they haven't seen high levels of inflation, they now understand the inflation dynamic and see what happens when inflation is high and erodes their real earnings, etc. So it seems to me that there's been a bit of a sea change in the way that labour and the unions approach wage increases and that this could easily carry on for many years from here, them say inflation settles at 4% as opposed to 2%, which seems quite likely, right? Or that it's volatile around 4%. Why would the unions and workers in general not demand wage rises next year of another 5, 6, 7%? I mean, private sector wages are running at what, about 7% at the moment. It's hard for me to see why that wouldn't continue next year. Yeah, I understand. I, I, I um, have a lot of sympathy with that view. I think that real wages have deteriorated over time, even if nominal wages have been reasonably good in the last couple of years. And then for a long time, medium wages in real terms haven't really increased. So uh, I think this is a bit of a fight back by, by workers and, and unions in particular to regain some of that income uh, over time. Company margins are quite high, so they could try and push for higher wages workers take a little bit more of the share of the overall pie of the economy. And I think that the the other thing which is, of course, allowing allowing this is the tightness of the labour market. And um, I think there's a, you know, there's a few potential reasons for why the labour market is so tight, but you see it in many different regions. And I do think there's an element of uh, different things going on here. One of them is um, just that it's cyclically quite tight. But also, I wonder if it's structurally a bit more um, tight now, given declining working age populations, not necessarily declining overall populations, but declining working age population. In Europe, we're seeing population declines of, of half a percent to one percent per year in terms of working age population. That That's quite large, uh, accumulates very, very quickly. So that declining working age population means those workers now have potentially more power. And then uh, another trend is that in the last couple of decades, companies either moved their workforce to uh, the emerging world, to China in particular, where uh, wages were cheaper. Wages have gone up in those places now, so it's a slightly less obvious move. But also there are concerns about moving your labour force to those areas, given geopolitical risk, given what's happened with Russia, given the, the uh, ESG dynamics as well, wanting to bring your supply chain back home to your region, um, given political policies as, as well. The um, Inflation Reduction Act in, in the US has got an element of local supply, and so has the Green Deal in, um, in Europe as well, got an element of local supply. So there's a, there's a couple of things going on. Policy is trying to support bringing labour back into um, particular regions. The labour force itself is shrinking um, a little bit, uh, so I think for all those reasons, you're starting to see Labour looking to regain a little bit more of the pie. So I, I do have sympathy with that view, yes. Okay, so inflation could could be slightly more sticky than, than many people think for quite a few years to come on that basis. Okay, so inside all this, uh, as you know, there's one more thing I want to talk about before we go to, to markets, to more specific markets. Uh, you mentioned um, profit margins being consistently high 
and that there's space in there for wage increases. But one of the things that we have been expecting, or many economists have been expecting for years, is some kind of reversion to the mean um, of profit margins, and particularly US profit margins. And it simply hasn't happened. And even you know, last year and this year, when we're seeing inflation coming through, when we're seeing these wage rises, and you think, well, surely now, surely now, profit margins will, will start to shrink. But, but no, what is going on there? I, you know, I think um, profit margins did come down last year. Even for those really big companies, the um, the um, FANG companies, the top five or so US big tech companies, margins have started to come down for these um, companies. So uh, from very, very high levels, margins have um, come down in the US and a, and a tiny bit in Europe as well. Estimates have started to come down. And I think that's a combination of things, but uh, sort of rising costs, certainly one of them. But uh, margins are still pretty high. I agree. And uh, when I say they've come down, it's, it's quite small versus the gains that margins have made in the last 20 or so years. And um, our US strategists recently wrote a paper on this. Most of the gains in the last 20 years or so have been in uh, what they call cost of goods sold. So um, that is you're either squeezing your suppliers or you're just getting um, cheaper raw materials globally. And uh, it is difficult to see that sort of um, constantly cheaper global raw materials persisting when we know that, um, that there hasn't been a lot of investment in recent years into commodities and things like that, which makes those markets very, very tight. Other reasons why you've had higher margins have been lower taxes. That doesn't seem likely at the moment, given government indebtedness globally. Um, remember all the tax cuts that Trump first put in um, when he came into power. And that uh, that definitely boosted S&P margins. And then another thing has been interest costs coming down constantly because you always borrowed at lower and lower rates. And that's in reversal now. So um, it may not be a really sharp fall, but um, I, uh, I do think that, um, that you will start to see margins certainly not expand in the way that they did over the last decade. OK, so it certainly feels like a turning point. Yes, it's certainly going to be a very different cycle this next one than it was last. Okay, that doesn't sound great for equity markets. No, and again, this is, comes back to this point of equities levitating a little bit this year at quite high levels. I described it as, as resilient uh, in the face of slowing economic growth, uh, a sort of pattern of um, potential for margins, which isn't so strong this next cycle, and another competing asset class, which is, which is cash or bonds, which now offer you a better yield. Having said that, equities do have some factors, which I understand, which which kind of explain a little bit their resilience. I think that you have got in the biggest cap stocks in equities in the US, you've got the tech companies. They're seen as um, the developers, the gainers from um, artificial intelligence, which is a big new technology wave. Obviously, that's going to influence economies and markets over this next decade. So that's that's going to be crucial for those stocks. And they are a big part of the market cap. I also think with interest rates peaking, so we we think the Fed has got to the peak in its cycle. And even though we don't expect a a sharp cut in interest rates, we're no longer for interest rates rising. Um, And that's helpful for these long duration companies, these tech companies in particular. And then in Europe, you've got, we call them the granolas. The biggest companies in Europe are really healthcare companies, um, branded consumer goods companies, some of the big tech companies in Europe. These are by far the largest in terms of market cap. And these companies, 
they, I think they will benefit in the next few years from um, trends like aging populations are going to help healthcare companies. Um, AI will help healthcare companies as well. Some of the tech companies will benefit from AI. Um, branded consumer goods is extremely strong. Um, so I think, and, and protect their margins, even in higher inflation environments. So some of the what's in the markets, I guess you could say, what the markets are made up of uh, suits this environment. Okay, interesting. Um, let's go back to commodities, because you, you mentioned when we were talking about inflation that it seems unlikely that that we'll continue to see what we saw uh, until a few years ago, constantly falling commodity prices, etc. So the cost of input for companies falling, falling, falling. And you mentioned those markets are much tighter now. Is that an area where the ordinary retail investor should be invested, do you think? Um, so into commodities directly or into... No, not directly. I don't think that's a good idea. A good idea, but in uh, commodity-related equities. Yeah, if you if you invest in commodities directly, you've got the danger that suddenly you, know, yeah, so, you, you know, might suddenly <laughs> find it in your house. Yeah, barrels of oil uh, turning up in your garden, which may not be so good. Um, so, uh, yeah, I probably wouldn't um, recommend direct investment in commodities, but um, I do think that it is one of the scarce resources going forward, and uh, therefore some exposure to commodities is a good idea. Um, and you can get that by the equity market because, of course, there are companies which um, are commodity producers in the equity market, so energy stocks or the mining companies, for example. And the UK is a brilliant place for that because we've got our great big miners, uh, Rio Tinto, BHP, etc., which pay you a fabulous yield while you sit around waiting for commodity prices to go up. Yeah, so those, and those companies are doing two things with their cash at the moment. Um, they are paying you dividends and they're buying back shares. But they're not really doing one thing with their cash, which is investing it in um, new quantity supply. Investors aren't really paying for that at the moment. They're not keen on them doing so. And now that's partly for ESG reasons, partly for environmental reasons. You want to see more of the cash steered towards the companies that are investing in renewable projects. Um, certainly true that big oil and big energy is as well investing in some lower carbon projects. So some incrementally going into that. But there isn't a lot going into traditional energy production or into um, uh, other commodities like industrial metal investment. So because of that, and these are quite long lead times, but because of that, these markets are quite tight, probably going to mean higher prices this next cycle than the last one. Yeah, but it's a tricky one, isn't it, though? Because if you want an environmentally friendly energy transition, you have to dig up an awful lot of metals to get there. <laughs> you need those industrial metals, you need all those minerals, you need the rare earth metals, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and it might be nasty to dig copper up, but you can't have an energy transition without digging up an awful lot of copper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, copper is needed for electrification, which Europe is largely going for um, electrification as, as a way of reducing pollution. And that's going to require lots of cables, lots of copper, lots of investment that in, in requires equipment, machinery, metals, etc. So uh, we will still need a lot in this next decade for that transition. So there are some hideous conflicts there in the world of ESG, aren't there? That that always are, um, but uh, you need you need to be really dirty to get clean. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the case. I don't know. Uh, I, I give that to you as a as a title for a note one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, thank you for that. Now the other thing we talked a little bit about the UK because we talked about BHP and and, and Rio Tinto etc. and the yields available. 
And one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast, because it's incredibly irritating, is the state of the UK market. And uh, uh, you recently put out a note called UK in pursuit of the American dream about uh, the UK companies all desperate to shift their listing to the US so that they can get much higher valuations. And of course, their CEOs can be considerably better paid because that's one of the big parts of, of moving to the US is that not just your shareholders get more money because your you hope your rating goes up, but of course your your management can get paid as much as they like without being constantly nagged by shareholders as they are here. So this is true. This is happening. Is there a way out for the UK? So I think when you say it's true, it's happening. It is happening for a few companies. But I always think that um, if you're going to move your listing, you do have to have a reason for moving your listing. Um, So you need to be a company with a large American footprint, for example. Um, And there are, to be fair, lots of UK companies in that position. So um, that you know that 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 maybe narrows your list of companies, but it's not really narrow. There are lots of companies in that position. So I do think you or you have to be in an area where you believe that you uh, can attract a lot more US investment. So if you're a domestic UK company or a company with a footprint which is more European, then there is really less reason um, for listing in the US. I think, look, it's it's a tricky one. I do feel the main reason that UK and European companies, because I don't think it's just a UK issue, um, but the main reason that European companies are on lower valuations than US companies is that there isn't a large domestic investor base in Europe. If you look at the US stock market, around 80 to 90% of it is owned domestically by the big pension funds, endowment funds, but also by individuals themselves. You know, all the meme stocks and things like that, they're generally US companies uh, that people have wanted to hold directly. If you ask most people, they would know, uh, they've heard of the Dow and the S&P, um, and those big indices in the US, whereas um, investment in, in Europe is seen as much more niche. Um, fewer people invest, and it's a a smaller share of household wealth. Households in Europe tend to invest more in um, housing, uh, more in bonds, and more in um, cash deposits. So uh, that has been a bit of a problem, really. Europe can't attract all this point about the US has deeper capital markets. Well, yes, but that's because there are lots more domestic investors. And uh, the UK in particular, I think, has an issue. It didn't used to. Uh, In the 1990s, we never talked about this. And the reason we never talked about it was that 85% of the market in the mid-1990s was owned domestically in the UK. Now, only around a third of the market is owned domestically in the UK. And that's because insurance and pension funds that were the big holders of UK equity have been sellers um, in the last 20 or 30 years. And that means that there isn't really a domestic um, investor base which wants to buy UK listed shares. And they've sold for, there are all sorts of reasons. It's about their decline of defined benefit pension schemes. It's about regulation that has driven them to be supposedly more diversified or into so-called safer assets like government bonds um, and that kind of thing. So there have been all kinds of regulatory changes that have shifted the way that the huge UK pension funds invest. And it's it's rather worrying when you think that pretty much everyone in work in the UK at the moment is an equity investor via their auto-enrolment pension, but they're not really invested in the UK in the way that we like to think they they should be. And this doesn't look like it's going to turn around, does it? So domestic investors are still, to a much smaller degree, but still net sellers of UK stocks. Yeah, they are still net sellers. Um, They have less and less to sell because they're they're a smaller share of the UK market now. But uh, 
I think that they're encouraging more domestic investment in public equity would um, would encourage sort of higher valuations for uh, public equity as well. And I think that there have been in, in the past sort of waves when you had um, in the late 80s and 90s a lot of privatisations, for example, people became involved in those um, and wanted to invest in those. Insurance companies and pension funds as well did used to own a lot of UK equity. And I agree with you for regulation, asset match and reasons they've reduced that weight. Uh, but I, I do think a little bit more of an equity culture in Europe and the UK will be helpful. Um, and it's one of the reasons that you don't see such deep capital markets in Europe. Might the cheapness of the UK equity market really begin to attract external investors? So foreign investors and net buyers, right, of the UK. Again, not on a huge scale, but net buyers. And the discount of the US mar- UK market to the US market is still vast. And while everyone says, oh, well, that's about sectors and it's about us not having growth and it's about us not being tech, et cetera, et cetera. I know that even when you adjust for that, the discount is still pretty big. And we're beginning to see uh, private equity bids fall for some of our companies, the smaller ones in particular. So is there a chance that you just get to the point where the market is cheap enough that American investors in particular look at it and say, well, why are we invested here? Well, we can invest in similar companies over there at half the price and we begin to see a wave of capital coming into the UK. Or is that pie in the sky thinking, which I'm prone to? Definitely not. I actually think this, this has been happening and will continue to happen. So I have a lot of conversations with global investors that see the UK market as being relatively inexpensive. So I think in a way, this gap between the US and the UK or the US and Europe overall, there really only are four ways it can close. It can either close because you see global investors uh, buying Europe and the UK, sort of fund flows, as it were. And you have seen uh, fund flows out of the US in recent years and into Europe over the last few months, particularly uh, sort of the end of last year, uh, very early this year. So we have seen some of that fund flow move. Another way that it can close, as you mentioned, is acquisitions. So companies buying companies or um, private equity companies buying public listed equity, which perhaps looks quite inexpensive. And again, we have seen quite a lot of inward acquisitions into the UK in recent years, particularly of smaller companies, not necessarily the high profile ones that make the news, but um, a lot of smaller companies. That's another way the gap could close. Another one we've talked about before is UK companies or European companies relisting in the US and trying to close the gap via that. Although I do think that will be relatively niche, not, not every company can or would want to do that. And then the final way the gap could close is just that UK companies say, we're too cheap, we've got cash on our balance sheet, we will use that to buy our own equity. Um, And you've seen buybacks uh, rise considerably in the UK, uh, particularly amongst financials, oil companies, mining companies, et cetera, which are on very low valuations. So buying back your own shares um, has been another route uh, to trying to close this gap. As recommended by Warren Buffett in his latest letter, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, it's also going to help in terms of improving your earnings per share. If you've got fewer shares, the same number of earnings, same amount of earnings, then uh, you'll see a better earnings per share growth over time. And the US market's been fantastic at achieving that in recent years. And I think increasingly, particularly if you've got, if you're in a more cyclical business, like a commodity business, for example, financials, you don't necessarily want to commit to dividends every year. But when you have additional cash, buying back shares, if your share price is cheap, makes a lot of sense. Although there's always a slight worry that a lot of those buybacks are related to uh, chief executive bonuses. Yeah, I mean, 
I guess it's one way of um, boosting the share price and creating shareholder return. A lot of people would like to see more money invested in growth. And I do think that's, mm, that's one area the UK and the whole of Europe is not keeping pace with the US, to be fair. And I do wonder, I don't think this is necessarily uh, the incentives placed on top management. I'm not quite sure of the reasons for it. But if you think about the US, there's a lot of incentive to um, on top management to boost share prices by any short-term means. They often have remuneration related to return on equity or shareholder returns, which is quite short-term. So if anything, US companies should be quite short-termist, but they tend not to be so much. They invest a higher share of their um, cash flow from operations in what we would call growth capex, which is either um, capital expenditure over and above depreciation or R&D. Um, so US companies, they uh, spend about a third of their um, cash flow from operations on that gross investment, whereas European companies, it's around a fifth. So uh, even in a, in a place like the US, where there's a lot of focus on um, the top management's remuneration being related to share prices, et cetera, even there, they've got quite a lot more foresight and they are looking and investing for growth. Maybe we should stay invested in the US. <laughs> now, Sharon, with all, all these things that we've talked about, um, where do you think the most interesting parts of the market are uh, for retail investors at the moment? So, you know, Japan has had a fabulous run so far this year. Is that I know it's not quite your area, but maybe that's interesting. I know you've written recently about the luxury goods companies being very interesting. We've talked about commodities. We've talked about the UK and uh, Europe relative to, to the US. But if you had to pick out a couple of areas that were particularly interesting to you and, and therefore should be interesting to ordinary investors right now, well, what do you think they would be? Yeah, so um, I think for ordinary investors, there, there's a, a combination of lots of different assets you can invest in right now. Um, even cash um, and bonds provide you with some reasonable return. Whereas uh, if you dial back the clock um, three, four years ago, you were getting uh, certainly negative real returns in those, if not um, zero nominal returns. So you didn't have a lot of opportunity. So I think there's an opportunity for diversification which is always important for retail investors, for all of us. We want to diversify. We don't want to put everything into one basket and take on too much risk. But if I'm looking within UK equity, which I don't think is particularly expensive at the moment, I mentioned right at the outset that US equity looks quite expensive um, on 18 or 19 times PE. The UK market is on 10 or 11. And some of the cheapest areas are financials and commodities. So as a kind of longer term, medium longer term um, view on these areas being undersupplied, particularly commodities, um, and being relatively inexpensive, and the companies having options like um, buying back their own shares or paying additional dividends, uh, that looks like a reasonable area. Uh, but having said that, I would have a bit of a bar-bow strategy. We're going for some of this cheaper stuff that looks potentially undersupplied, but also um, some of the newer growth areas look interesting. Anything that looks like it would likely gain from productivity improvements from AI, for example, uh, bits of healthcare, luxury goods, tech, um, all look reasonable as well for the medium term for investors. You won't get paid so much in the way of dividends from those or buybacks, but you probably will have nicer longer term growth. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Now, final question. No warning for this. Bitcoin or gold? Gold for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no shadow of a doubt uh, there. I um, I think Bitcoin is is highly um, volatile asset, very difficult to pin down in any way to sort of economic fundamentals. In comparison, gold, I think, provides you a nice little hedge against two risks that are out there. 
One is that we do go into a deeper downturn than expected. Maybe there is a, a further banking stress um, causing loans to, to tighten, credit conditions to tighten. Uh, gold is, is attractive in that sense. The other risk that's out there, and we talked about a lack of supply of commodities. We talked about maybe higher inflation because of that lack of commodity supply, but also higher wage growth. Um, higher inflation means you really want to own real assets. And gold, in a sense, is a real asset um, as well. So I prefer gold on that basis. Okay, brilliant. Do you know, I don't think I've had anybody yet who's chosen Bitcoin. <laughs> spread my net wider. There's got to be someone out there who chooses Bitcoin, Bitcoin over gold. Yeah. <laughs> Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. That was great fun. I hope we can talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Sharon Bell and, of course, as ever, to John Stepek. And, of course, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes. At the top of the podcast, John and I discussed all sorts of topics. You will find detail on all those things in those Money Distilled newsletters. Do not miss them. I'm John Seifer. And I'm Jerry O'Shea. We spent over 30 years in the CIA uncovering global conspiracies. Conspiracies aren't just a theory to us, which is why we started our podcast, Mission Implausible. Everyone has questions about conspiracy theories, but with our background, we can actually answer those questions. Anyone can just start screaming about microchips and Jewish space lasers, but it's our mission to remove the bull and get down to what's real. Listen to Mission Implausible on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.